Tonight our message is entitled Beware of Hitchhikers. Um, all week we've been kind of dealing with the theme, the roadmap to heaven. And so every night we've kind of done some play on maps or <laughs> roads or travel. Tonight, Beware of Hitchhikers. Uh, let's turn with, turn with me to the book of John, the 11th chapter. Or actually, let me do the, you can go to the next slide. Let's do the verse that we have up top first. We'll do Philippians 2, 11 to 13 first, then we'll go back to John. Philippians 2, 11 to 13. And the scripture says, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to go into your word. And Lord, to learn your truths. I ask, Father God, that you make me just a nail upon the wall right now. A rusty old sorry old nail, Lord. And upon that nail hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. So that, Lord, Eric Walsh is not seen tonight. Only the wonderful, radiant beauty of our Lord and Savior is our prayer in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus and his disciples were a ways off when news came to them that Lazarus was sick. The story is recorded in the book of John, the 11th chapter. One of my favorite stories for a lot of reasons. But as you look at the story, he's there and, and he gets this news. And they expect, most would expect, that since he was the friend of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that he would have gone running right to the bedside of his ill friend. But he doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, in verse 4 of chapter 11 of the book of John, Jesus says, the sickness, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. The Bible says in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into, into Judea again. Jesus waited two days before he responded to the, to the, to the uh, call to come to Lazarus, who was ill. He didn't immediately jump up and run to where Lazarus was. He waited two days before he moved. There's a lot in that. That's rich in that in our lives, sometimes we expect that when we pray, God should immediately, uh, you know, almost like a, 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 a magician or an ATM machine in the sky. If we just push the right buttons, what we want should come flying out. But the Bible shows us that God has his reasons as to why he moves how he moves. He, he doesn't just do what we want him to do. He, do. he does what best fits his will and his good pleasure. And in the end, what will best glorify him. 
So many times when we think God has not answered our prayers, it's not that God has not answered our prayers. He is just waiting sometimes to answer our prayers so that we get the best blessing bang for our blessing buck. In other words, he wants to maximize what he does for you. He's trying not to just give you what you want because sometimes in our own human minds, we are superficial in our desires. We want a mate more sometimes because of how they look rather than who they are in Christ. Sometimes we want a job more because of how much it pays rather than whether or not in that position could we do and be God's servant, be his hand where we work. So sometimes we ask for things that God waits on us for in order that our spiritual uh, 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 minds can mature to catch up with where God would have us to be. So God does not always come running to answer your prayers. Sometimes he pauses. And what I'm learning in life is that when God pauses to come to your rescue, oftentimes there's a lesson to be learned or there's a, or, or, or some great benefit that will come from the fact that God has you wait. The Bible is filled with God causing people to wait. The children of Israel were 11 days away from the promised land, yet they marched around in the wilderness for 40 years. Noah and the ark, it was 40 days, 40 nights. And even when the rain stopped, they still had to wait. There are many times in the Bible where there is a wait, there's a pause. God makes people wait because, first of all, we don't, he, God does not run on our time. We run on his time. So God doesn't always do things the way we think he should, not in the time we think he should. And this is one of those situations. As Jesus is ready to go uh, back to Bethany and to be with the family, one of the disciples, Thomas, we'll skip through this part quickly, but he actually is worried that they'll be killed on their way through. And Jesus, speaking about God's time, Jesus says, look, my time is not yet. Jesus was on a time and he, a timeline and he knew that he could go where he wanted because the time for his uh, crucifixion, the time for him to be delivered into his enemies and to deliver us through that process was not yet. So they went anyway. He runs into one sister first and the first sister talks about uh, Lazarus and, and Jesus says in verse 14, uh, he says unto them plainly to the disciples, Lazarus is dead. And he says in verse 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you might, you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Thomas gives the little speech there. Verse 20, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Verse 21, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. But look at verse 22. She says, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou will ask of God, God will give it to you. Martha had faith. She didn't get the full picture, but she had powerful faith. Let's look at the other sister. We skip down, and as soon as she leaves from around uh, Jesus, she goes She goes to get her sister. Uh, verse 28, and, and she called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The master is coming, calleth for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus was not yet coming to the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews, the Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her, 
When they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goes unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. Both sisters understood something that we need to understand. If Jesus is in the room, death has no sway. If Jesus had simply been in the room where Lazarus was dying, death could not have taken Lazarus. So much of a force of life is Jesus that just being in the, in the presence of Jesus means that death is rendered powerless. Ah, that's why if you're a Christian, you are not, we don't speak of Christians truly as having died. Why? We speak of them as having, uh, being asleep, as in the story. Because if Jesus is in your heart, when your time comes and you pass, you really have not died because sleep, uh, inside of you is a little bit of that Jesus that on resurrection day will call you back. The Christian needs not ever fear death because Jesus is the great life giver. If Jesus is in you, death will never have complete sway over you. So you need not fear death. You need not be afraid of what the world will do to you. Because as we're going to talk about in the morning, we live in a world now where we need to become prepared to deal with persecution as Christians. And so you must know Jesus, you must have him in your heart, must have him in your life so that you understand that you are not subject to death as is an unbeliever. In other words, make sure Jesus is in the room. The Bible goes on. Verse 33, the Bible says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And the Bible says in verse 33, 35, Jesus wept. The Bible only records Jesus crying twice. This is one of the times. As Jesus is standing there in front of the tomb with, with uh, the sisters of Mary crying and these hired mourners crying around him. And he looks at the situation. Uh, Ellen White tells us that Jesus could see the full effect of sin and what it had done to humanity. And he was even able to look down through the ceaseless ages and look down into even 2006. Six, and when Jesus saw the suffering that his children would have to face, Jesus wept because this was not God's design. It was not God's design that people die, that people have cancer. I saw a patient just today and, and she's battling with, with, with a severe form of cancer and she's getting the chemotherapy. And one of the things she said was she's not even sure if the if, if taking the treatment for the disease is worse, worth it, because it seems as if the, the treatment is worse than the disease. When Jesus sees the suffering of people watching uh, this woman's husband sit at her bedside, hospital visit after hospital visit, difficulty after difficulty, complication after complication, this, these Christians sitting and suffering under the effects and weight of sin, Jesus looked down through time and saw your pain and he wept. You see, a lot of people think, well, God is a cruel God. He, he's so distant. He doesn't 
feel my pain, but, but you don't understand. Jesus already cried for you. He already wept for your pain. He saw your struggles. He knew your parents were divorced. He knew that you'd have death in your family. He knew that you'd get into relationships that did not work out. He, he knew you might have poverty issues or, or disease issues or a child that has problems. And, and Jesus wept in advance. He cried because he saw that man was in trouble. Part of the group that was around him were hired mourners. And these people were paid whenever there was a funeral. They were paid and they would show up at the funeral and they would cry on purpose to make the funeral setting more, more sad, more, more grim, more gloomy than it would have otherwise been. And so they'd hire these people to come in and to cry. You see, our message is entitled, Beware of hitchhikers, because you see, some of us have hired mourners in our lives. Some of us have people in our lives who aren't really around us because they have our best interests in mind. They're there because they get something out of our relationship, and often they are the ones proclaiming the most doom on your life. I always warn Young people, as they're going to choose a spouse or they, they, they want a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever the situation is, be very careful because it's very easy when you think you're in love to pick, pick up a hitchhiker. To spiritually pick up someone who really is only after what you can do for them and, and aren't going to feed you in any way spiritually or, 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 or socially or, or physically or, or, or mentally. No, no way. They're just, they're just there. And, and, and if you're a Christian, uh, can you really afford to have to carry someone else? Can you really afford to have to try and make sure that two of you are saved? Say beware of hitchhikers. There are a lot of Hired mourners in the church. A lot of people who the first thing they want to do when something's going wrong in churches, they want to complain. They murmur like the children of Israel used to murmur. They talk bad about the pastor. And, you know, one of the reasons that young people leave church is because oftentimes their parents leave church and go home for lunch and have the pastor or the leaders of the church for dinner. They talk about them. Every week they talk about them. And if you're a child and you hear this for 12 or 15 years of your life, when you turn 18 or 21, how much do you want to go to church if all you ever heard at home was negative things about the house of God? The truth of the matter is a lot of kids leave the church. And then, of course, as youth pastors, the parents come back to me and say, look, you've got to save my son. Go get him. He's he's in the gangs. Go get him back. But it's you've said more in 15 years than I can say in 15 minutes. We've got to be careful what we say about God's church and what we say about God's leadership. And, and one of the Bible texts I often bring up when people want to talk about church leaders is touch not the Lord's anointed and do his prophets no harm. Even if you don't agree with what church leadership is doing, it is imperative that we don't just throw stones at those who God has put in position. If God didn't put them there, all you got to do is wait. He's still on the throne. But when we speak against God's leaders and speak against the denomination and speak against the church, oftentimes all we do, the Bible says life and death is in the power of the tongue. 
The word tongue in the Hebrew is, 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 has a connotation of being like a hand so that when you speak, it's as if something goes out and forms what you're saying. So if you sit there and talk negatively about church all the time and, 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 and are around people who are just negative all the time, you've picked up hitchhikers and, and, and I'm telling you, picking up hitchhikers is dangerous. I tell you, you see a lot of hitchhikers. There was a time in America where people would stop and pick up hitchhikers all the time. But the criminal mind and all of the stories that you've heard all of the years about what happens when people pick up hitchhikers, I think God, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say God, I think the law and the media have shown you that when you, if you are ever contemplating picking up a hitchhiker, be prepared. Because you don't know who you, who's getting in the car. And, you know, as a Christian, sometimes you say, well, I want to do a good deed. Let me stop and help this person. But it's something that we, I mean, all of us have to face, I guess. At some point or another, you'll drive by someone. How do you know who it is you're picking up? If you're careful with who you put in your physical car, how much more careful should you be who gets into your spiritual travel? How much more careful should you be who it is that influences how you think, young people? How much more careful should you be? Bible says that as Jesus hears these hired mourners crying and, and he looks at the situation, Jesus wept. The Jews say in verse 36, behold how he loved him. And look at how they question him. These are these hired mourners. And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone was upon it. And Jesus said, take ye away the stone. I want to submit to you in your spiritual walk, you've got to be prepared to move stones. Jesus is about to work a miracle, but he doesn't ha- he doesn't ask the stone to float away on its own. Jesus asks for the participation of man in- with the divine. Jesus doesn't just do it all for us. You know, he, you know, you ever, we're often asked the question, you know, why is it that God allowed sin to run its course on this earth? Why didn't Jesus just allow angels to come to earth and preach the gospel for us? Because our participation in what God is doing often is what helps to save us. And even people ask all the time, why would a good God allow suffering in this world. And all of the philosophy I've studied going to all the schools, I've gone to, I, I took, took philosophy and, 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 and comparative anatomy classes at places like Wake Forest University and the University of Alabama at Huntsville and University of Miami in Florida, and all of their explanations for why suffering comes into this world fail. The only answer that ever makes sense to me is found in the book of the scriptures, of the Bible, and is expounded upon in the book, The Great Controversy. And that is that God is so loving and so fair and so just that when he was challenged by the enemy, by the devil, God allowed sin to run its full course. So he loved the universe so much he allowed sin to run its full course so that when people saw the full effects, and I'm talking people, unfallen angels and unfallen worlds, when they saw the full effect of sin, 
they would choose to love God. No other explanation makes sense to me like that. Because at the end of the day, the Bible says that God is love. Well, love cannot be forced. You cannot make someone love you. And even God, an omnipotent being, if he made you love him, it ceases to be love. So he allows sin to run its course and asks us to choose him, to love him out of our own volition and through free choice. And when he does this, he steps back and allows sin to run its course and it gives us an opportunity to see the full effects of sin. So ironically, God is often blamed for the sin that the enemy causes. People say, well, why didn't he just zap the devil? Why didn't he just do away with Satan right away? Because had God done that, there might have been left a question in somebody's mind, one angel or or, or in one unfallen world. They might have had a question left in their mind. Well, maybe Lucifer was right. And you see what happened to him. He questioned God and was destroyed. But I can tell you when it's all over and there's a new heaven and a new earth, there will not be one person that will doubt that God was right and that God is love. So much so that the scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Even Lucifer will have to confess that God is fair and just. I read a book um, a long time ago um, about uh, spiritualism in the media and in Hollywood, and there's one actress, Shirley MacLaine, I believe her name is, um, kind of an actress from more back probably in the 70s, um, but she was into um, being a medium and, and, and kind of having spirits speak through her. And in one of the books I read, there's a quote where she's having this conversation with this, this being that she meet, you know, that she, the spirit that she mediums or speaks through, I don't know how it works exactly. Um, I don't really want to see it happen either. But so she's there doing this. And one of the things that, of course, we understand these spirits are really fallen angels. These are demons. When she's having this dialogue, she says something to him to the effect and I, from the book. She says something to the effect. What is it that you miss most about where you were? And this demon, this spirit answers and says, I miss being in the presence of the love of God. Shirley MacLaine records this in one of her books. Even the demons miss the love of God. That's powerful. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of, if you read a lot of the books, many of of those fallen angels are angry that you have an opportunity at salvation that they don't have. Isn't it sad if we squander the opportunity to be saved that God has given us? Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him. Martha was really seemed the more rigid of the two sisters. The one that kind of made sure everything ran right. She jumps up. She says, um, uh, says of him, as it says unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he has been dead four days. The Jews had a belief that if someone was dead three days, they were beyond the point of being resurrected. 
So it makes sense now. Jesus waited to come because he needed to make sure that Lazarus was in the grave long enough to get past the so they would not think that really Lazarus was just asleep. As a matter of fact, if you remember back to the leader of the synagogue, his daughter died and and Jesus raised him from the dead. There were those in Israel who believed that she really never did die, that she was just sleeping. So this time, this this is the crowning miracle of Jesus's ministry on earth. He waits the four days so that they know Lazarus beyond a shadow of a doubt had died. He says, Said I not unto thee that if thou would, would believe, thou would see the glory of God? Then take away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Powerful. Jesus prays, steps to the steps in front of the of the open tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. When the vibrations of Jesus's voice echo through that tomb, that cave like tomb and hits the lifeless, breathless body, now just really a lump of clay. His Human vibration is met by his divine inspiration and power. And when it when it all collides on the body of Lazarus, something deep inside of him is stirred and death becomes life. And not just life, but but Lazarus is probably brought back to life healthier and 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 better looking than he ever was before Jesus called him back from the dead. Lazarus come forth. So powerful is Jesus that he had to put a title on it. He had to say Lazarus come forth because had Jesus just said come forth, every dead body in the cemetery would have got up and walked out of the grave. That's the power of Jesus. I submit to you that there's another angle to this story, you see, because all of us, when we sin, we, we are sin, the wages of it, the wages of sin is death. So on a level, when we are sinners, when we are in the world, when we have not accepted Christ, we are in a way like Lazarus, we are dead. But I submit to you that Jesus is still in the business of, of calling to the dead and giving them life. If, if you'll just make yourself accessible to his voice. Where Lazarus was physically dead, Jesus can call you back from being spiritually dead. Jesus has the power to speak in your life and and change you so that even spiritually things you used to do before that that was so so uh, tempting so so seemed so valuable before things of the world that should be shut out when Jesus has called your name the things you used to do become detestable you become driven away from what you used to do. You become a new person so that the nightclub scene and the music that you used to love, now when you hear it, it, it just drives you crazy. The smell of the cigarettes you used to love, now when you, they're putrid, when you, when you smell the smell, Jesus changes you. And you become a new creature in him. 
I submit to you that we must work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, the Bible says. But even when that is said, we must be so in a place where Jesus can reach us that his will and his pleasure is given reign in our hearts and minds. I submit to you that you serve a more powerful God than you realize. I submit to you that some of the weaknesses, some of the some of the sins that so easily beset us simply being laid in a place where Jesus can get to them. If we just rolled away the stone from in front of our hearts. A lot of us leave the stone on the sins we don't want to let go of. A lot of us leave the stone there so that the voice can't get through. I challenge you tonight to roll away the stone. Allow Jesus to have full sway in your life so that when he opens his mouth and he speaks, when the Holy Spirit is calling to you, it's tugging at your heart, calling you to a better relationship with with him, that you hear it and, and that which is dead inside of you would come to life. Because you serve a very powerful God, one who wants to give you new life. In Christ Jesus. He wants to give you another opportunity to know him. One of my favorite stories, I probably told this at Advent Hope before, but it's one of my favorite stories about a young man who, it's a true story, back in the the, the 40s or 50s in this country, he was playing poker in one of the western states, one of these western United States, and while he was playing poker, he had had a few to drink, he got angry, at the person across the table from him and said that that young man was cheating. So he reached down into his bag because he thought he was going to lose money and pointed the gun across the table and pow, shot and killed the young man across the table from him. The man's body fell lifeless to the floor. The police were called. The young man that was half intoxicated and still had the gunpowder resin on his hands was handcuffed and and put into the police car and, and taken to the jail. No bail was offered and he sat in jail until trial and trial came and he was found guilty by a, a, a jury of his peers and and sentenced to die in the electric chair. By now, the whole process had taken a few years, and the family of this young man decided that they would begin a petition and try and get a stay of ex, uh, uh, try and get him not to be executed, a stay of execution. So his family began to write out petitions. Everyone in the family signed the papers. Everyone in the, on the street and then on the block and in the town and in the next town and in the whole county and county by county, town by town, people began to sign a petition to ask the government for mercy and to spare this man's life. Eventually, baskets and baskets of, of these petitions were delivered in front of the governor. True story. The governor was a Christian. The governor, when he saw all of these papers, all of these petitions, he decided to write out for this young man a full pardon. To let him go based on the time he had already served. The governor wrote out the letter and and folded it up in his briefcase and went into his closet before leaving and slipped on the robe of a preacher. 
The governor went down, jumped in the limousine, and was taken to the state penitentiary. He got there and was met by the warden and brought to death row and went into this young man's cell. As he began to walk into the cell to talk to the young man, the young man jumped up and he said, get out. The governor said, wait, I've got news. I've got good news. The young man said, get out. I've been a Christian all my life and look where it's landed me. Get out. The governor said, please listen to what I have to say. I've got good news. The young man said, I've seen five pastors already today. Get out. The governor tried one more time. Son, listen to what I have to say. And the young man said, if you don't get out, I'll call the warden and the guards and have you put out. The governor at this point dropped his head and took that letter with him and walked out of from the cell and went down those metal hallways and down the stairs and was met by the warden again and brought to the limousine and whisked back to the governor's mansion. As he left, the warden came running up the stairs to death row and ran to the young man's cell and ran into the cell and he said, how did your visit with the governor go? The young man said, what? You mean that man dressed up like a preacher was the governor? The warden smiled and he said, not only was it the governor, but he had a full pardon written out for you. The young man said, quick, give me pen, give me paper. And he began to write, dear governor, I am so sorry. I did not know it was you. The governor received that letter on his desk and with tears streaming down his face, the governor flipped the letter over and wrote on the back, no longer interested in this case. The day came for the young man to be put to death and he was marched down a long aisle and he stood up in front of the electric chair and uh, the, the officer standing next to him as all of the cameras of the media were there to have his face plastered all over the newspapers the next day. All of them had microphones ready and the officer turns to the young man and he says, before you die, is there anything you want to say? The young man looks into the cameras and he says, yes. Tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because I'm a murderer. Tell them that I'm not dying because I did anything wrong. Tell the young men of America that I die today because I refused to accept the pardon. He said, I refused to accept the pardon. You see, as Christians... Not one of us will really be lost because of what we did or didn't do. If any of us is lost, it will be because when Jesus offered the free gift of life, we didn't take it. 
When Jesus offered you an opportunity to know him as your personal savior and to have the love of Christ constrain you for him to give you the power to live a holy, righteous life. When he offered it to you like that man sitting on death row waiting to die, some of us will not recognize that it's the voice of Jesus calling to you. And if you don't recognize Jesus, if you don't accept him when he makes himself available to you and you're lost, it really will be nobody's fault but yours or mine. Like that young man, we've all made our mistakes. But like that young man, the power that has the ability to loose you is offering you freedom tonight. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, and you're praying, I want to ask that if there's someone who wants to accept that pardon tonight, you want to accept the free gift in mercy that Christ is offering you. I want to ask you to just wave, raise your hand where you are. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. As every hand is put down, I want to ask one more question. If there's someone who has not given their life to Jesus, maybe you've been around church all your life, but you don't feel like you've ever really given your heart to him. Tonight, I want to give you that opportunity. And I want to ask if you've never given your life to Jesus or if you feel like you need to give your life to Jesus tonight, I want to ask you to stand where you are. In the balcony, on the floor, it doesn't matter. Right now, Jesus is calling you. I told you last night why this world doesn't mean anything to me. Praise the Lord. Because when Jesus wept, he felt the pain of when I lost my mother and my grandfather and my cousin. And I understand now that the only hope I have of joy ever in this life or in the next life is in knowing Jesus. And I want to offer that to anybody tonight. It's not mine to give, but Christ gives it freely. There's someone else. Stand where you are. You want to give your life to Jesus tonight. If you're in the balcony, on the floor, just a few more minutes, praise the Lord in the back, in the back, praise the Lord. Anybody else, you want to give your life to Jesus tonight? Praise the Lord. Is there anybody else? That tugging you feel is the Holy Spirit calling you. God is working on you. He has the power to take you from death to life in all things. Accept that power right now. Is there anybody else? Anybody else you want to give your life to Jesus? Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Praise the Lord. Anybody else? I'm actually going to ask those who are standing 
just join me down here. I want to pray with you specially tonight. Just make, just come out of the aisle really quickly and come down front so we can pray. And anybody else who wants to come, come now. Tomorrow is not promised. Young man, I see you standing. Come down front. In the balcony, come down. We're going to pray. In the back, wherever you are, come down front. Because I believe God is still willing to give mercy to any who want to receive it. Just make your way down front. Tomorrow is not promised. Now is the acceptable time. Is there anybody else before we close? You want to give your life to Jesus. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your truth and for your word. That when Jesus speaks, like he said, Lazarus come forth and a dead body became a living soul. Father God, apply that life-giving power to each of our lives tonight. Father God, as Jesus groaned in the spirit and he wept, let us understand that God has not left us alone tonight. But that even in our darkest hour, even in our greatest difficulties, even in our greatest trials and tragedies, Father God, remind us that Jesus wept for us already. That even in the darkest hour, he is closer to us than many of us would ever know. Father God, for those who have come down front, I ask that you seal their decision. Father God, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. That angels would be given charge over each of them. And that the power of the enemy would be subdued and restrained in their lives so that now, Lord, they could grow freely with you. Lord, there are many of us who are not coming down front, but Lord, we need to be revitalized as well. We need uh, we need newness of spirit in you, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Ghost. Fill us with your power, Lord. Not so that we are glorified, Father, but so that as Lazarus' resurrection glorified you, Lord, our lives would be a testimony to the power and love of God. And Lord, there are some who should have gotten out of their seats and come down front. I ask tonight that you give them no rest until they find rest in Jesus Christ. Lord, bless these that have come down front again, I pray, Lord, in their finances, in their families, but most importantly, in their faith. And Father God, when Jesus comes again, we would be caught up in the clouds to meet him. And that, Lord, we would spend an eternity with you, loving, Lord, and enjoying you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.